So if you could turn in your Bibles with me, please, this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 8. The 8th chapter of John's Gospel. And uh, just hold your place there. Now this is going to be uh, the last in this short series of Notorious Woman of the Bible. And I think, I trust, that I have kept the best story to the last. Uh, this is a story of redemption. It's got a very happy ending. In fact, this story is so good, I should tell you that this story is so good, it's almost too good to be true story. And uh, that the early church fathers, that several of them would not accept this. In fact, this story is not in some of the early manuscripts because it seemed to be that Jesus was going easy on sin. Now, of course, we know he wasn't, but it seems to be because his grace is so good and it highlights and showcases the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ so well that it troubled some, that it seemed to be that it was going too far almost and that, that some of them actually didn't even want to end the full canon of Scripture. But here it is, and I, for one, thank God that it is included. And uh, so, had we read John chapter 7, we would have seen there that Jesus uh, had spent uh, a few days at the Feast of Tabernacles. And while he was there, as he was wont to do, uh, he would uh, preach and he would teach. And, uh, but he tried his best to not stir up any trouble. But wherever there were scribes and Pharisees about, uh, they were never far from Jesus. And are constantly harassing him and always forever trying to pin something on him whereby they could accuse him. And in fact, even at the feast, it had got to such a pitch that the scribes and Pharisees sent their officers to arrest Jesus. Uh, but they came back without Jesus being arrested and said, well, where is he? What's happened? And they, says, they just shook their head and said, well, never a man spoke like this man. And, of course, that absolutely infuriated them. Uh, and so now, at the end of uh, John chapter 7, the feast has ended, and people are beginning to drift and go make their way home on their journeys. And in Jesus, he goes up the Mount of Olives, and there he spends, we can only assume that he spent all night in prayer. As he, again, as he was wont to do, that was one of his favorite places to go, where he could be alone, and he could spend time with uh, his heavenly Father. However, after he spent that night in prayer, immediately, whenever dawn broke, uh, he immediately came down the mountain, uh, made his way across the, the Kidron Valley, uh, into Jerusalem, and right into the very uh, temple of God. And uh, so that's where we pick up the story here in John chapter 8. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, now, early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Now, it says he came into the temple. More than likely, he would come into the court of the woman. Uh, whenever he would come into the temple precinct, she would come through uh, the court of the Gentiles, and then you would uh, come to a wall where the Gentiles could proceed no further, He'd go up some steps and then through the gate beautiful. That's where Peter and John healed the man at the beautiful gate. And then he would go into what was the court of the woman. Now, the men of Israel could go also into the court of the woman. 
Uh, but the woman could go no further than that. And the next part of the temple precinct would be the court of the men of Israel that only obviously the men could go into. And then beyond that would be where the priest would officiate and so forth. So it seemed to be that Jesus particularly liked the court of the woman. Uh, that's where the treasury was. And that's the place you remember where he taught about the woman who gave her two mites, put them into the offering. And so he sat down and he taught them. So he's assuming the posture of a rabbi. Uh, you know, and they called him rabbi or master, and that's what he did. He, he sat down and he gathered people around him, usually his, his disciples, but anyone that wanted to listen, he would, they would come and listen. He would sit down and he would teach them. And so that's what he's doing here. Now you may say, well, it's very, very early in the morning. Who could possibly be at the temple at that hour of the morning? You know, it's just dawn has just broken. Well, you'd be surprised there would be people go there for early prayer. And also, because the feast had just ended, uh, those who perhaps had come to the feast from, from a long way away uh, and maybe would feel, I, I might never ever get back again, maybe because of age or infirmity, I may never get back to Jerusalem again, may never see the great temple again. So perhaps they would go to have one last long look at this magnificent temple uh, and maybe offer up their final prayers in the temple of God, giving thanks to Jehovah. So there would be some people there. In fact, normally in the temple area, there'd be literally hundreds of people would be there as the day would build up. And so here he is. He's in the temple, the court of the woman, and he's sitting down and he's beginning to teach. It says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman taken in adultery. Now let's just stop again. As usual, I will stop, start, and try to build the picture here. This is the first time and the only time that John in his gospel mentions the scribes. There was a number of groupings in Jesus' day, both religious and political, uh, and most of them were against him. Uh, there was the Pharisees, of course, which were the most numerous uh, of the religious groups. They were the separatist ones. They were the, if we could put it this way, the, the most fundamental ones. They were the real hardliners. And then there was the Sadducees. The Sadducees would be much more wealthy. Uh, and if I could put it this way, if the Pharisees were the fundamentalists of their day, then the Sadducees would be the liberals of their day. They were very liberal in their views in many areas, and there's great disagreements between them and the Pharisees. One of the big disagreements, of course, they did not believe in the resurrection. And then there was the scribes, and, and the scribes were a branch of the Pharisees, and by this time in their history, the scribes were the, particularly were those who specifically copied out the Scriptures. Now, this was a very, very important job. It was a very detailed job uh, and a very painstakingly hard job to do. I mean, every little jot and tittle they would spend, and they would pour themselves hours and hours and days and weeks and months and years into producing scrolls. And uh, so the scribes and the Pharisees particularly, they felt they were the defenders of the faith, that they were the, the real true blues, as it were, and they were going to defend God's Word. In fact, they had oral laws which fenced in the Word of God. They made all these kinds of laws and traditions that Jesus said, actually, He said, your, your traditions make void the Word of God. But that's, that's what they did. 
And then uh, above and beyond that, there was the Essenes, and they would be the ascetic people. And in fact, they didn't even bother with the Pharisees. They didn't even go to the temple. They were out at the Dead Sea area, and they had their own traditions, and they had their own ways of worship, and uh, they, they didn't even want people to marry. They would rather that they remain celibate, the men particularly. And so they, they didn't associate. In fact, they're never even mentioned, you know, in the Bible at all, there's no word of the Essenes there at all, although there's implications there may have been. And then, of course, there was the Zealots, and the Zealots were the, well, they were the kind of paramilitaries of the day. Uh, they believed that they uh, could take uh, Rome by force uh, rather than by argument. So they would take up arms, and uh, one of Jesus' apostles had been a former Zealot, Simon the Zealot. And so the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, particularly those uh, groups, they were the ones who were... And then there was the Herodians. I should have mentioned the Herodians. The Herodians were very political, and they were siding with Herod. Uh, and they, of course, they were very religious too. And so those four, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, were all dead against Jesus. And did everything they possibly could to, to, to trip him up and to trick him and to catch him and to accuse him. So he was constantly being harassed by these religious people. Now the reason why I believe that John mentions the scribes in here because there's going to be an argument about the law. And who better to argue about the law than the ones who, wrote, who copied the law and who were the teachers of the law, who were the explainers of the law. So I believe this is why John is mentioned describes particularly here. All the other gospel writers write about them all the time, by the way. So then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Now while Jesus had been up the Mount of Olives the night before praying all night, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had been up all night plotting plotting against Jesus. They couldn't get him the day before. They wanted to arrest him. It didn't happen. They angered them, and they sat up all night figuring out a way where they could trip up Jesus. And the way they were going to figure out was going to be with the law. If there's any way they felt they could catch him, surely it will be with the law. And if we catch him going against the law, then we have got him. And uh, the people will be on our side because we're the defenders of the law. That was their thinking. And so they caught this woman taken in adultery. Let's just read on a little bit more. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now that lets us know a couple of things. First of all, they knew who she was. They knew exactly where she lived. They knew that her lover, whoever he was, was there at that particular time. Now, I can only begin to imagine uh, that this woman, perhaps at two or three in the morning, when these religious police busted down her door and rushed in there and dragged her out of bed and arrested her. It must have been a horrific experience. It must have been frightening for this woman. Now, also notice that they didn't bring the adulterer to Jesus. And they should have. If they were really, really concerned about defending the law, as we said, it takes two to tango, doesn't it? And both were at fault. 
the man and the woman. So both of them should have been brought before Jesus. If we're going to bring anybody, then both of them, according to the law, should have been brought. But they didn't bring the man. I wonder why. Could it be that he was one of them? We don't know for sure, but could it be he was one of them? Wouldn't put it past him. You have to understand that adultery, immorality, it was at an all-time high at this stage. There's nothing uncommon in this. But anyway, they only brought the woman. Now, they brought her and they set her in the midst. Now, you read that, but you have to think a little bit about that. You have to imagine them bursting in through her door, dragging her out of bed, maybe a dozen of these men, and hounding her through the streets of Jerusalem into the whole temple precinct, right through the court of the Gentiles, where there was perhaps dozens, if not hundreds of people milling around, and people, as they were dragging her through the city, would, would tag along. You know, sometimes people see an ambulance or sees a fire engine that's going somewhere, they just want to go with it to see what's going to happen on the other end. And I could imagine just out of sheer curiosity, they said, well, what's going on here? Something's happening. This woman's being arrested by the religious police. Let's go and see what's going on here. And they would drag her through and up those steps through the gate, beautiful, and into the court of the woman. And by this time, Jesus would have a sizable crowd around him, and he was teaching, and he was sitting there teaching them, and they would burst through that. They'd hear the commotion going on, and everybody would be looking at this scene going on, and they would push their way through, and they'd just fire down there at Jesus' feet. It must have been mortifying, humiliating, to say the least. She probably only had her nightie on. I mean, this must have been excruciatingly embarrassing for this woman. And here they are. And then they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. And in that they are correct. Now in Leviticus 20.10 and Leviticus Leviticus 20.10 and also in Deuteronomy 22.22-24 it talks about this. Adultery was a grievous sin. And in Deuteronomy it says it's one of those sins that was punishable by death, by stoning. Now you have to understand again that this time in Israel's history, stoning was very rare. Adultery was commonplace. So the law wasn't observed very well. Also you've got to understand that this was in Roman times. So no Jew could go out and stone somebody if somebody had to die as a penalty, if it was a death penalty, it had to be through the Roman authorities. That's why, as much as they would love to kill Jesus, they had to bring him before Pilate. And the Romans had to crucify him. But that was the law of God. That was true. Now, in that they were right. But they said, but what do you say? 
testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Now, what does that mean? Testing him by which they might have something to accuse him. Well, here's what their thinking was. The law says she ought to be stoned. The law actually says both of them ought to be stoned. But they only brought one. The law says that she ought to be stoned. But Jesus is preaching mercy, forgiveness, pardon, grace. Everywhere he went. That's his word to the people. So what's he going to do? Is he going to uphold his word? Is he going to lay aside the word, the law? Or is he going to uphold the law? And is he going to lay aside his word of mercy and grace and pardon and forgiveness? Because if he does that, it's going to be such a shock to the people who hear him. So as far as they were concerned, he was on the horns of a dilemma. As far as they were concerned, he was in a no-win situation. Because if it holds the law and lays aside what he's preaching, then they're going to say, well, you're a hypocrite. You're preaching forgiveness. You're preaching love. You're preaching grace, but you're not doing it. On the other hand, if he lays aside the law and holds his word, they're going to say, you're a lawbreaker. You're a lawbreaker. And he would have broken the law. So as far as they're concerned, Jesus is in a no-win situation, and they're in a win-win situation. Because no matter what he says, he, they win. That's what their thinking is here because they want something to accuse him. But you know, Jesus himself was, he was very careful about the law, so he was. And in fact, if you could just read in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, just for a second, in verse 17, this is what he said, Do not think that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth shall pass away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So you see, Jesus did uphold the law and taught that the law should be upheld, not to break the law. Now, in Luke chapter 9, Verse 55 says, But he turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know what manner of spirit you're of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So, here's a dilemma. What's he going to do? Here's a woman According to the law, deserving of death by stoning. He's preaching love and grace and forgiveness. What's he going to do? Break his word or break the law? As far as the scribes and Pharisees are concerned, this was brilliant. I mean, this is the best scheme they ever had. I mean, this is one they sat up all night figuring out. And no doubt they, they looked at all the minutiae of the law and they tried to discover every way they could find. They thought, ha ha, this is it. This is the one. In front of everybody, what is he going to say? And this is one of those moments in the life of Christ where just his sheer wisdom 
See, what they didn't realize is that a wiser than Solomon was standing in front of them. And that wisdom of God just suddenly came to the fore. So look what happens. What do you say? This they said, testing him that they might find something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I want you to watch very carefully. I'm standing here talking to you. Suddenly, if I was to get down like this, and just almost like ignore you lot, and start to write something on the ground. What was the first thing you did there? The first thing you did was you looked at me, didn't you? As I went down like that, you looked at me. And in looking at me, you were looking at nothing else. And in that moment, when Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground, I think all eyes and all that crowd turned on him. Before they'd been looking at this woman, all eyes were on her. The scared, frightened, ashamed, embarrassed, humiliated, wretched woman. Pitiable. And all of a sudden, they're looking at him. And I think in that moment, he spared that woman's blushes. And I think that's the compassion and the gentleness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would spare that woman's blushes in that moment. And they were all looking at him. Everybody's nosy, aren't we? I mean, we're all nosy, aren't we? And if I'd been standing there, I'd been looking too. I'd been wondering, what's he writing? Can you see? Come on, move a bit. I can't see your big head's in the way. Let me see. And everybody was jockeying to see what he was writing. Did you notice it says he wrote with his finger? Now, I've got to use your imagination a little bit because it doesn't tell us. Tantalizingly, it doesn't tell us what he wrote. I wish it did, but it doesn't. And it's not always wise to use conjecture at these points, but I think because the subject is about the law, I don't think it's a big stretch to, of the imagination to, to, to wonder, I wonder was he writing the law? Because in Exodus 31, it says that God gave Moses the law on tablets written with the finger of God. And I wonder, was he writing the law? I wonder, was he writing the Ten Commandments? I wonder, was he going through them and just writing them? Because they're talking about the law. They're trying to trip him up in the law. Well, nobody knows the law better than he does. He is the Word made flesh. So he's writing. And he's writing. And maybe he's writing such things as thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Maybe he was going through those commandments. 
But notice here. So when they continued asking him. So when he's writing, they're talking. They're very, very rude, these people. Did you ever notice how religious people who are very debative, argumentative, they're very rude too, aren't they? They don't really care what you're thinking or saying or speaking. They just button in all the time, aren't they? So here they are. They just continually speak to him because they're absolutely convinced they've got him here. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now, they think they're going to get him by the law. He's putting the law back to them again. Because according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, let me just read this to you. Verse 5, Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing, and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death. Listen, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, he shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. By the way, those who advocate either for the death penalty or against the death penalty, it would be good to read this. The death penalty in the Old Testament is only on the basis in the mouth of two or three witnesses, not one. A lot of talk today that innocent people maybe has been executed, and perhaps they have, on the basis of one testimony. But the Bible put that safeguard in, so that there would be two or three, but never one. Now, notice, it goes on, the hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of the people, so shall you put evil away from you. So Jesus is quoting the law back to them. He said, all right, he is without sin among you. You'd be the first to cast the stone, because that's what the law says. Now when he says he is without sin among you, he's not saying those of you who are sinless cast the first stone, because nobody's sinless. He's the only sinless one, isn't he? If that was the case, nobody could carry out judicial judgment because everybody is a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But maybe he's being much more specific here. They're talking about one particular sin, the sin of immorality. And maybe that's what Jesus threw back in their face. He is without the sin of immorality because this is what you're accusing this woman of. So, whichever one of you are free from that sin, you go ahead. You'd be the first to cast the stone. And maybe by the time he had finished writing on the ground that first time, maybe they had looked at that. You can be sure everybody else looked at it. And even if he was quoting in a general way, he is without sin. Every single one of them could have been convicted, couldn't they? So he says, go ahead. The law says, if you're without sin, those of you who are accusers, see, the accuser who could throw the stone had to be free from that particular sin. Otherwise, it'd be a hypocrite, wouldn't it? So Jesus here is 
is coming right back at them with the law. And now he's got them on a hook here. But notice what he does. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So the second time, he stoops down and he writes on the ground again. Then those who heard it. That's a strange weapon, isn't it? You'd think it was then those who read it. Then those who heard it. Where did they hear it? They heard it in their conscience. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience, because their conscience can speak to us, can't it? Do you ever have that wee voice saying to you, uh uh-uh, it's not right. Then those who heard it by their conscience convicted went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. So, however many of the accusers were there, by the time Jesus had finished writing what he wrote on the ground, and by the time their conscience had pricked them, every single one of them began to leave one by one by one by one. Because every single one of them were guilty of immorality. You know, Jesus says even to look at a woman and to lust after another woman is committing adultery in your heart. That's a higher law, isn't it? And so, the accusers are left. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Hmm. Let's just think of that for a moment. It says twice that Jesus was left alone. It says he was left alone. It says, and when there was no one. Does that just mean that it's saying that it wasn't really alone because there was, the crowd was there, but the accusers were gone? Or does it literally mean that there was no one there? Does it mean that not only did the accuser's conscience prick them, whatever he wrote on the ground, but it pricked everybody else's conscience too? And that crowd all dispersed until there was nobody left. All of us are guilty before God when it comes to sin. All of us has to hold our hands up, don't they? So he says, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Then Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now listen. When Jesus is asking the question, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? He was asking that for a specific reason because the law had to be fulfilled here. But the only way the law could be fulfilled regarding the death penalty would be if the accusers had stayed and they had cast the first stone. But they didn't because they couldn't. So Jesus couldn't. He wasn't an eyewitness. He wasn't an accuser. He didn't condemn. So he couldn't do it. 
So the law, by him letting her off, he was not breaking the law. Because the law couldn't be enacted. Because there was no accusers and there's no condemners left. Are you still with me? So he's making it absolutely clear that he's breaking no law here. Because he upholds the law. He fulfills the law, the Bible says. Woman, where are your accusers? No one condemned you. She said, no one, Lord. Curious. The word is, in the Greek, it's a very respectful term. Sir. It's very respectful. She'd never seen anybody like this man before. Can you imagine her embarrassment being trailed before this holy man of God? This rabbi in Israel that the whole nation is talking about? <laughs> By the time he's finished, there's only her and him left. And suddenly, every good thing she'd ever heard about him was all true. Every lie she'd ever heard about him, she realized that was not true. Something different about this man. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. But so that he did not condone her sin, he said, Go and sin no more. And he's specifically talking about that sin. Because he realizes that we will never be sinless. But never ever do this again. That was his admonition to her. Bible doesn't tell us, but I imagine that she never ever did this again. Because not only did he not condemn her and he didn't condone her sin, but I believe that what he said to her and what he showed her that day gave her the power to conquer that particular sin. So that never ever again would she ever be caught in such a sinful situation? And just let me close out with this this morning. J.G. Butler says something about this that I could never improve on, and I think that it would be good to leave this thought with you. Because this shows the marvelous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus wrote on the ground with his finger, reminds us of God writing his commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, with the finger of God. Do you remember how that whenever Moses was up the mountain, Mount Sinai, and God gave him the commandments written with the finger of God, and he went down the mountain, he was up there a long time, and by the time he went down the mountain, his own brother, the high priest Aaron, had actually made a golden calf, and they were all dancing around it, worshipping it like an Egyptian god. And Moses could hardly believe it, and he was angry. And he threw the stones down, and he smashed the stones. That's in Exodus 32. In Exodus 34, God again rewrites the commandments on two tablets of stone. On Exodus 40, Moses comes down the mountain, and this time, do you know what he does with those two unbroken tablets of the law? 
He puts them into the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, you remember, is that, was that wooden box overlaid with gold, that wooden chest overlaid with gold. And the seat of it, the lid of it, was called the mercy seat. It was made of pure gold. And there was two cherubim, two golden cherubim, set on top of that. And they had their wings like that, each touching each other's wings, both looking down upon the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would go into the holiest of holies with the blood of the Lamb. And he would sprinkle the blood of the Lamb on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Now, Christ in the New Testament is our mercy seat. The Bible says in several places that he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the word propitiation comes from the exact same word as we get mercy seat. So he is literally our mercy seat. That mercy seat on the, on the ark was the type of Christ to come at whose blood was sprinkled. And with Christ, the sprinkled blood was on the mercy seat. We have a perfect standing with God through Christ. And it was sprinkled before the mercy seat. And with Christ, we have a perfect standing before God. You still with me? Ah. Butler said this, and I think this is lovely. He said that the first time Jesus wrote with his finger, writing the law, he stood up and he spoke the law, didn't he? He is without sin, let him cast the first stone. He was quoting the law. But the second time he writes, he gets up. And this time he speaks grace. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The law was covered with grace. And that unbroken law in the Ark of the Covenant was covered by the mercy seat, covered by grace. Isn't that lovely? See, all of these things, I'd love to do a series sometimes on the tabernacle and the high priest garments and the offerings and the feast because all of it speaks of Christ. And so Jesus, upholding the law, not breaking the law, but yet covering it with mercy and showing mercy and grace to this poor woman. Go, he says, sin no more. Don't ever let that happen to you again. You can overcome that. You know, Jesus... Some people had trouble saying, well, how could Jesus forgive that sin? Listen, Jesus is going to have to die for that sin, by the way. He's going to have to die for that woman's sin, so he could say it, couldn't he? He actually never says, I forgive you there. He says, just go and sin no more. But for that woman's sins, and for your sin and my sin, Jesus had to go and die on the cross, didn't he? So there is the woman taken in adultery. A wonderful story of the grace and the compassion and the mercy of God in a life. Isn't God good? Amen? All right. Let's pray. Bless the Lord.